Welcome to Voices of Resilience, a special series from the Vital Voices podcast, where we're sharing stories of courage, commitment, and perseverance in times of unprecedented crisis. I've been reaching out to the women leaders we work with around the world, really just to check in and see how they're doing and find ways that we can best support them in the wake of COVID-19. But what's been fascinating is that rather than replying with their individual needs, the overwhelming responses I've received from the leaders we work with across 182 countries around the world is that they want to find ways to support others. This instinct for leadership is precisely why for the last 23 years, all of us at Vital Voices have been supporting women on the front lines of change. And I truly believe that it's this kind of leadership that's needed in our world now more than ever. So we wanted to bring these leaders, their voices, ideas, solutions, and this great sense of solidarity they have from around the world to each of you. During this series, we'll talk to leaders across industries and cultures. They'll share with us their insights into how they're dealing with this current global pandemic or how they've navigated turbulent times in the past. We'll talk about how they motivate themselves, their teams, and their communities ways that they stay focused on their larger goal, that driving force, and where they find the strength to carry on. We hope that this special series provides a little bit of inspiration in what might feel like a sea of chaos. So thanks for listening. I'm your host, Elise Nelson. Today I'm calling Vital Voices Engage fellow, Isata Kabia. Isata is a passionate political leader community advocate fighting for women and girls' equality in Sierra Leone. She's pushing for progress across Africa, and she's the founder and director of Voice of Women Sierra Leone, an organization working to increase women's political participation. She's also the CEO of Afrilosophy, a social impact training and manufacturing company focused on creating jobs by making cosmetics, hair, and body products. Isata recently served as a member of government. She was the Minister of Social Welfare, Gender and Children's Affairs, as well as the Minister of State, and was the first ever elected female member of parliament in her community. So Isata, you certainly must be very busy with everything that you have going on. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So just to start off, I I would love to know, how things are going in Sierra Leone with this this pandemic. I know that the cases in Sierra Leone are still quite low, only around 50 or so. But can you tell us how things are being handled? Are you in lockdown with COVID-19? What's what's happening there? Well, um, I would like to commend the government on the initial response. And they were very decisive. Um, For example, um, in March, we already stopped all flights coming in and going out of Sierra Leone. We also actually um, put in place mechanisms to have quarantine facilities, even at the time when we did not yet have a single case. Wow. We yeah. now have 50 cases, so <laughs> that didn't work, the prevention. Um, but it's to be expected because we are a very close-knit society in West Africa. So at the time when we had zero, Guinea and Liberia, our immediate neighbors, already had cases. So mm. this tells you what early surveillance and early testing 
may have produced. Mm. Um, also, the decisive actions really need to be matched with the services, facilities, and capacities to make sure they work. Um, we, as African countries, small West African countries, can't really mimic large countries who have the prerequisite infrastructure to handle these kinds of major decisions. So we see this potentially as an adverse impact coming up in terms of economies and in terms of social issues. And we hope that this would not be a prolonged response, but having seen what happened in China and the USA and Italy, we anticipate that it might be, so we should really prepare for it. Um, mm. Transparency is not usually a word we associate with governments, right? Governments really are quite opaque. And in this health response, governments across the world really should be working towards being more transparent. And for us in Sierra Leone, we have a very, I don't know, kind of culture with health, which is not about prevention. It's more about people only going to the hospitals when they're at the point of death. You know, it has to be like a really desperate situation for them to trust the hospital above mm. anything else. And you can only build trust with transparency. So we are really seeking for governments to be more transparent so they can build more trust, so they can build more confidence in the people. Um, hopefully then they'll present themselves with early symptoms and follow advice. Mm, wow, I love that. You can only build trust with transparency. So simple, but yet the key, the absolute key to leadership. And I think we've certainly seen um, what good leadership is and quite frankly, what bad leadership is. Nothing, nothing highlights leadership the way crisis does. So I, 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 as I sit here listening to you, I, I do wonder about the fact that there are so many people who live in communities without access to running water in Sierra Leone. So those are people who also probably cannot stay six feet apart. How is Sierra Leone accounting for those people? How is the government yeah. managing to, to support those people? You mentioned a, a quarantine facility, so I didn't know if that was something they'd put in place. Yeah, so access to portable water um, is an area that we're still struggling with, we're still very much challenged with as a country, including the capital city, Freetown. Um, and we had an initial three days lockdown a couple of weeks ago. And the access to water challenge actually became the thing that burst the seams. So we had a three-day lockdown where people could not leave their houses after 6 a.m. and they couldn't leave after 9 p.m. curfew. So um, we <laughs> actually, it was so strange because in certain areas they have pumps, which are public pumps because there's no running water in the houses. And right. people were leaving to go and access water but these pumps were only open at 11 p.m. And curfew was at 9 p.m., for example. So oh, boy. Yeah, there were a couple of clashes with police and soldiers, um, which I thought was really unnecessary because these are things government should have put in place to avoid, and it wasn't done. Um, you have, of course, people in remote areas where it's a matter of going to a well. Now, the portable access to water, um, access to portable water has been... A, a running crisis in Sierra Leone, so to speak, because it's usually girls and women who fetch this water. So usually under normal circumstances, girls are going to the wells at 4 a.m., fetching water before they go to school. 
Um, wow. We have a syndrome in Sierra Leone called Water Babies. Um, so we've had issues of rapes and gender-based violence and crises and resulting pregnancies um, from these early morning accesses. Um, it, it's, it's really something that we have to make a priority, um, not just within a crisis, but generally speaking as, as a country. Hmm. Wow. Wow. Thank you for that. And, uh, you know, it, it really makes me think how, as I talk to women around the world, it seems as though so many of the responses by governments, not just in your country, but in, in really many, many countries, just don't factor in those people who don't have a home, who don't have access to clean drinking water. Um, you know, I, you obviously, this is not the first time that Sierra Leone has faced a major crisis. Um, Sierra Leone was recently impacted by uh, another major health issue, Ebola. And uh, can you tell us a bit about how Sierra Leone got through that crisis and what, what maybe some of the lessons are that you are, um, you are taking into this one? Do you feel almost as though maybe you were better prepared because you had been through another health crisis? Yeah, so when we had Ebola, um, I was a newly elected member of parliament. I'd been in parliament for a couple of years. Um, and initially we handled Ebola with great difficulty, but ultimately I would say with great resilience. We were not prepared for sure. So we had no facilities to address the number of cases. We had no facility health-wise to address the type of cases, you know, the acuteness of that disease. And so we're in a state of not being prepared with no facilities and no knowledge of a disease with no cure. So you can mm -hmm. only imagine the panic. But we had leadership. And we had leadership within communities because I was based in a constituency and I saw that, I experienced that. I worked with people who went above and beyond just to make sure things worked within their local communities. And we had leadership at the top with the presidency. Um, but in the end, I believe ordinary Sierra Leoneans won the fight for us. Young men and women within my constituency who came to me and said, Honorable, how can I be of service? and ordinary citizens who risk their lives to volunteer as first responders, contact tracers within communities, and volunteer to be part of a burial team, which was a highly risky job. And of mm. course, as in the current fight with um, COVID-19, we had brave medical personnel on the front lines. We lost, as a nation, we lost 11 senior doctors to Ebola response. And mm. we are a country with a very, very small pool of doctors. Um, 120 doctors at the time of Ebola. And wow. so 11 senior members is no small loss at all. Um, it was quite difficult, but I think what came out of that clearly is what we could do as a nation together. And the learning that um, we got from Ebola, I think some of that could be quite applicable to this response as well. Mm. Um, we, of course, Ebola, as much as um, COVID-19, is more than just a health related disease. Um, there are so many social impacts that we should be very mindful of. And the learning that's applicable um, from the Ebola response is more than just the health protocols. It also includes the social issues that were emanating from that prolonged and disrupted life. 
um, and, and it includes education because schools and universities and everything else was closed for a very long time. And we managed that gap at the time with radio programming. Um, already the educational gap for developing countries and developed countries is so wide and steep. And we also don't have the digital infrastructure to really be able to reach children in remote areas. But governments at the time used radio. And I think government now should be as innovative in using social media and radio um, so that children can access learning even in those remote areas. And after Ebola, there was a surge of um, teen pregnancies. It was really quite dramatic situation for us who do a lot of work with girls. And I think we should be proactive in making sure this is not our inheritance post COVID-19. Um, this is a space we are working in currently as Voice of Women Sierra Leone. And we are engaging girls and young women who are on our mentorship program um, to make sure we keep them busy, keep them learning and keep them focused. Mm. Wow. So you've written quite a bit about um, leadership in times of crisis. Can you talk about um, what Ebola really revealed about leadership and how the coronavirus is being influenced um, by those thoughts and beliefs? In terms of leadership, I mean, as I said earlier, I feel that right now we are, we are really getting a very close look at how leaders around the world lead. And as you've probably seen, um, we're seeing that there, the, the very small percentage of women who lead countries are rising up because of their leadership style with passion and empathy. Um, can, you, can you talk a little bit about that and, and what you have learned in the process? Yeah, um, as I spoke earlier, we had great leadership at the very top during our Ebola response and great leadership within communities. So I, I see it that every valley is also a peak. So whereas the very top peak needs to reflect and, and, and um, showcase great examples in what to do, um, we also have those down at the grassroots level and within communities. And we need to leverage that kind of leadership in this response, in this kind of crisis response. And what we did during the Ebola response, for example, some of the messages in my constituency were not delivered by me. They were delivered by influencers, people who had reach, people who had power, even within their street corners, their own local areas. And they were the messengers. Um, they were the people that local people would listen to. So we built on that and, and we made sure we recognized and saw them, you know, and, and actually made sure we use their strength and their power to be able to deliver some of those messages for us. Um, whether it's the presidency mm. or whether it's other politicians at the very top, they have so much power and reach and influence and they have to be the bright example so that we can use that example to create more leadership within communities. And I think that's one of the strengths of, of great leadership, that you're building more, more leaders and not more followers. Uh, we must learn to recognize and commend and encourage leadership at the very bottom, um, at the local level, 
because these are people who are usually not seen, their efforts are usually not recognized. And I think the only way to get more of that kind of great um, action is to say, I see you and to say, well done. Um, it's happening every day amongst ordinary citizens who have just taken charge in crisis issues within their local communities, particularly women. And we must fight to amplify their voices and also to get them into positions where they can do more, where they can effect change, not just at local community level, but for their countries. That's why we are striving to get more women to run for political office as an organization. So we can make a difference to the politics itself. And so these women can make a difference to their communities. Mm. What I have seen and I, within, I wanna... Go ahead, please. Yeah, what I've seen within this um, the crisis, this current crisis, and female leadership in particular, um, it, it really kind of brings home what we have known for so long and what the world is now starting to recognize, the empathy and compassion that is needed at a time like this and indeed at any other time, um, combined with the particular attention to building social resilience, paying attention to the needs of the vulnerable. This is what women's leadership generally looks like. Um, generally, it increases and improves access to health, education, justice, and fair wages. And even within corporations, um, with more women in executive positions, those companies tend to be more profitable and also tend to be more about purpose. Um, and that is a difference that women bring to the table. Mm. Wonderful. Wow. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And thank you so much for the work that you do to really bring more women into, um, into the political scene across Sierra Leone. So to shift gears a little bit, uh, you also obviously work with um, women uh, in your community through Af um, Afrophilosophy. <laughs> Afrophilosophy. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that work? So we train mostly women, but we've also trained youth, you know, underemployed youth and undereducated youth in our community. We train mostly women in manufacturing and they learn skills, complete skills in manufacturing cosmetics or just soaps or beading and jewelry and they go home and start up their own small businesses. Um, a lot of women in my community already made soap, so they've been part of our training scheme to build capacity. Now they make different kinds of soaps, better quality soap, and they've gone on to continue their businesses. We also train women in financial management. So that means if you're already running a small business, we show you how to manage that small revenue to decide what to save, what to reinvest, and what to keep away for a rainy day. And we do this within what we call a village savings and loan scheme. So 25 and 30 women create savings circles and they save together, they pool their resources. After they reach a certain amount, they loan each other, whether somebody will take a small loan for their business that they pay back with interest, but the capital and the, print and the, the interest belongs to you. Um, but it's much easier to be able to take a loan after one month because they're actually pooled resources than for you to be able to save that kind of money by yourself. And we'll be able to grow businesses that way. So business that initially in 2014 and 15 when we started was taking a small loan of $10 is now taking the equivalent of $100, which means the business has grown. So the impact can be measured directly. And these women um, have also, when they stand up to tell us, what this means to them have reported that 
this in the past, the, the, any single emergency in the past will result in their small businesses being closed. So if there's a health emergency and a child is in hospital and you have to spend everything you own to save that child, the business usually collapses. But we've built what um, amounts to an informal health insurance scheme. So you take a loan at no interest, you save the child, the emergency is averted, but the business continues to flourish. And um, we have 250 women now in our saving circles. And these are women running very, very tiny businesses, micro businesses in the informal sector. They're usually involved in food supplies to communities. So vegetable sellers, fish, um, and, and small farmers, uh, fish suppliers and small farmers. And at this point in time, it's really, really crucial for us to be able to sustain them, um, whether to support and assist in their business. And we're trying to bring up a scheme where we can do that. Um, our philosophy itself is right now impacted, of course, because of the lack of sales. But we're trying to see how we can devise a way to support the women so they continue their businesses. Otherwise, it's going to be a deeper hole to get them out of post-corona. Yeah. And, um, and I also know that you run, a, you run a foundation as part of that as well that builds schools in, in rural communities. So I can imagine working so closely, whether it's through these saving circles or through um, these local community schools, you are working directly with some of those communities that, you know, we're, we're pushing to, to um, you know, remain above the poverty line. And now this, I would imagine, is pushing them back, as you say, I mean, getting out of that hole. So what, what, can, what are you doing? What can you do uh, to support them in these times? Yeah, it's, it's really, really a difficult decision. And as you mentioned earlier, um, these are communities where staying six feet apart may not be possible, living in crowded conditions. Um, these are people who have to go out every day to earn a daily wage for them to be able to sustain their homes. So to be home on lockdown or for prolonged periods or to have businesses not functioning and customers not buying the way they usually do, it really impacts them and it has impacted them very, very early on in the response. Um, we have distributed soaps to local community through our district's wide response team. Um, we have donated sanitizers as well that we make at our philosophy. And we have repurposed because we have skilled tailors for our training programs. They are now making face masks. So we have these um, cloth masks that we make for communities and we have a program of buy one, we share one free. So we're pushing that so communities can buy from us. So we're able to donate to people who cannot afford to buy. Um, in terms of sustaining the women's businesses, this is about nutrition. So imagine now if those vegetables and the fish and the common foods that we use are not being able um, to be supplied and be supplied at reasonable prices by mostly these market women that we work with, uh, everybody's going to be impacted. So the nutrition in communities is going to be a loss as well as those women in businesses. But also um, these are women who are in desperate situations where now their husbands or their partners are also stressed financially and they're going to be home for prolonged periods of time. We already have reports of increased domestic violence incidents. So we're trying to prevent that, you know, by making sure everybody's um, still 
productive and functional. And so there are many, many layers to this response that are really, really urgent. We need to continue to look into. Mm. So we've covered so much ground today, but I just wonder one last question. Are there stories of hope that you're seeing emerge from the work that you're doing that are inspiring you to keep going? Absolutely. And that's really what keeps us going. The fact that we see the progress that ordinary people are making in communities, especially our girls. Um, for International Women's Day, we had a global mentoring walk in two locations. So we worked with secondary school girls and we also worked with university students and we put together a mock parliament and I met the most vibrant young people and I was really, really encouraged myself um, by the caliber of young women that I met. And I was hopeful because these young girls are starting out much, much younger than we did. Um, they are already speaking up and showing up and being counted and they're serving their communities and learning that leadership is about service. So the debate was on women's leadership and we had so many vibrant um, debates on that. So the university students on the global mentoring walk are already paying it forward. Um, they have done distribution of wash stations, soaps and sanitizers through Voice of Women. And um, they are also mentoring the younger ones. Um, just based on the pregnancy issues we saw post Ebola, we're trying to prevent that. And the older girls are checking up on the younger girls. And we have women engaged in this mentoring program who are really committed in paying it forward. So to me, that is good news for women, it's good news for girls, and it's good news globally for our world. Mm. Well, thank you so much for all the work that you do, um, for lifting up your communities, and I know also for, for being there for your family. Uh, so best of luck to you, and thank you for spending the time with us today. And thank you so much for having me, and it's really a pleasure to serve. Thank you for listening to this special edition of the Vital Voices podcast. We hope that you are doing all you can to keep yourselves, your families, your teams, and your communities safe and healthy. Follow us on social media with at Vital Voices and share ideas of other women leaders who are doing extraordinary things in this time of crisis. You know, I strongly believe that there has never been a more urgent moment to support these leaders on the front lines of change. They are the first responders in times of crisis. And the way that they lead change, it has never been more crucial in our world. So if you'd like to join us and support our work with women leaders, you can donate to Vital Voices on our website at vitalvoices.org, or you can text VITAL, V-I-T-A-L, to 41444. That's vital to 41444. Stay safe and remember that we will get through this unsettling time and we'll do it together.